that's just the change in season. So lots of fog and low clouds. We're limited to how low we can go on an approach into an airport. So to get into an airport on a low weather day, we can only go down to what's laid out on our charts as as a, a minimum altitude, minimum safe altitude that we know um, on a specific track and over a specific point that we're safe from any obstacles. And so we follow our instruments down because we can't see the ground. We follow a specific track, which means just a line usually towards the runway. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> uh, uh, and that starts about 10 miles from the runway and we fly to the runway and that whole time we call it the glide slope and follow this vertical guidance that takes us down to, um, depending on the airport, but Saskatoon, Prince Albert and stuff, it's 200 feet above the ground. And if we can't see anything at 200 feet above the ground, we have to go around, missed approach and climb back up and go somewhere else. It's not safe to continue past that. Okay, so you don't <coughs> land with instruments. No, we don't, or I don't land, we can't land with zero visibility. We don't have the equipment for that. The airports are not set up for that out here. That is a thing, but usually it's like major centers, Vancouver, Toronto, not Prince Albert. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if the weather's below that, we don't even bother going because you can't, you can't get in, you can't do it, so... So 200 feet of elevation, if anything is below that where it yeah. affects your visibility, yeah. you, then you can't fly that day. No, we just wait for it to clear up. Okay. So what happens with a missed approach? So if we don't have the, the altitude to get down or the visibility to see the runway, so we don't see anything once we get down to that, those, that minimum altitude, we have to, to go around. So it's just power up and fly away climb back up to a safe altitude. And then what do you do? We either go to our alternate airport or continue on to our next destination. Oh, so you'll completely skip that airport. Yeah. Well, you can't get in. So. Okay. Then what happens when it's your last stop? If that's our last stop, that's why we always plan for an alternate airport. So there's rules set out that govern the weather at an alternate airport. And so we're required by law to carry enough fuel to get us to our destination, to our alternate, enough fuel to shoot an approach at our alternate, and then another 45 minutes thereafter. All those contingencies are in place. Yes. You're never flying and you're, not a, you're never on fumes getting anywhere. That's not, that's <laughs> not a thing if people say that, we were on fumes. No, no. <laughs> Unless you're complete moron and <laughs> <clears throat> but by law and the way they train you is by law you have to have how far away does the alternate airport have to be um depends it doesn't have to be that far at all we use prince albert for saskatoon and saskatoon for prince albert and that's a 20 minute flight so, so then before you but leave, as long as the as long as the weather meets the minimum requirements for an alternate uh airport then we can use it Oh, so you'll check the weather. Mm -hmm. There's forecasts put out. And so within that forecast, there has to be a certain uh, cloud ceiling and a certain visibility. And as long as the weather is forecast to be above those minimum ceilings and visibility, 
it's usable as an alternate. Yeah. With that 200 feet, is it ever higher than 200? Oh, yeah. So up north where things aren't as... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> things are not as um, advanced up there all the time. Um, we're down to like... It can be like 900 feet or 500 feet, depending on the airport. It, it depends. On, and it depends on what's around it, too. If there's higher terrain, the minimums will be higher because you can't safely go down low without being able to see. So if, at some of the mines, it's 250 feet. Um, and it depends on the type of approach that you're using too. So we have GPS approaches versus um, a radio nav aid. So um, they use like an AM station on the ground and we have a needle that'll point to it. And to use that, it's called an NDB. <clears throat> It's not it's not super accurate. So your your minimum altitudes that you can go down to are a lot higher to keep you safer because you're not necessarily exactly where you need to be. Whereas GPS is very precise, you know exactly where you are, so it's safer to go lower. Okay, so you can go lower the more precise you are. Yes, but up north, since the technology isn't there, using that AM signal for some areas, yep. you have to be higher. Yep. So what's that nav aid guide you were talking about? A nav aid is just like an NDB. So it's an AM station. We have FM radio as well, which is the VORs. Those are slight, those are more precise. Those are actually being, actually most of these are all being phased out because GPS has taken over. What so. would make it so an airport would keep that around for now instead of moving on to the GPS? Honestly, I don't know. It's been probably 10 years since I've had to shoot a NDB approach anywhere other than training. So, <laughs> but they still train you on it. Yep. I can still do it. What's the big difference for you? Um, how you fly it, how you have to set yourself up because GPS is precise and there are certain waypoints set out and the screens are set up in such a way that, it's easier to follow the path. Um, the NDB is, is not, it's, it's a single needle that points to the station and that's it. So you have to figure out where you are in relation to that. And there's a lot of mental gymnastics that have to happen <laughs> to make it work. So it's a lot more complicated. Because <laughs> you have to line yourself up with that runway. Yeah. But it doesn't give you any of that information. No. So it, it's doable. It's but it's, it's a lot more difficult and there's a lot more room for error in doing it. So how do you manage the risk on that? Well, that's where the higher minimums come into play. It's managing that risk for you. And it's just practice. Like, What were you saying about there's different ways to approach to land? Yep. So, like, um, so there's the NDB approach, which is what I was just kind of explaining. Probably not very well. Well, there's a needle that's pointing. There's somewhere. a needle. It points to the station. You, it, you're, you're. We have approach plates. They're pieces of paper that show the runway, the orientation of the, the track that you're supposed to follow, and then the needle needs to line up on, on this track. Which is an imaginary line in the sky, right? And so, you just line the needle up where it's supposed to be. The only thing with that is you have to counter for wind and that's that's kind of what makes it hard because you're getting blown around one way or the other. So that's 
an NDB approach in a nutshell. They're not precise. They're called non-precision approaches. Um, the other one is a VOR. And so what that is, is there's an FM station on the ground. And that will send out uh, like a bicycle spoke radio signal and a 360 degree um, circle. And you'll see a radial. So each spoke is um, one degree of 360. So it's far more precise because you can figure out exactly what radial you want to be on. So if the runway is zero, 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 and you want to be on that track, all you have to do is set your instrument to read zero, zero, zero and line the needle up and it automatically counters for the wind. As long as you keep the needle centered, you'll, you'll know where you're at. So that's a lot easier to use. Yeah. And then on top of that, so that's a VOR that only provides you vertical or sorry, horizontal guidance. So left and right, um, for a more precise approach, they'll use that and it's far more precise. Uh, it's called the localizer, same idea, same instrument, but then they add the a vertical component to it as well called the glide slope. Both of those are just radio signals being shot out at you from the airport. And our, so you, again, you line the needles up, you make a cross on your instruments and fly that down to the runway. But now, the, then what's the next level? <clears throat> so the next level now is we get into the GPS approaches. And that one, they have the waypoints for you. Yep. And it, depending on the instrumentation you have in your plane, same thing. It just shows you the the track and then your vertical and you follow that down. It's all, so it looks the same, but it's getting the information from satellites versus a radio signal. Oh, so it's more reliable then. Yes. It's, it's more precise. It's more consistent. Yeah. It works very well. So and you, it's easier to put that in because all you're doing is programming this into your computer versus having to have, equipment on the ground that instrumentation on the ground has to be calibrated then yeah which is expensive which <laughs> yeah. is why only major airports really have that so saskatoon has one prince albert has one but gps is superior in some ways unless you have a gps outage which happens what how i've heard solar flares and stuff or you just don't have proper coverage where you're at sometimes that happens in the north okay so you actually have to be trained up to do all of these landing systems and keep it up to date. Yes. I do it every six months. Is that regulation or? Yeah, for, for airline pilots, yeah. So every single airline pilot has to get recertified. Every six months. <clears throat> They'll do training. Where do you go to do that? Um, Montreal. How long does it take? Um, it's two days of training. And then there's either a flight test at the end or... We call it a loft, depending on where we are in our training cycle. And so the the ride, the, the flight test, is a standardized test that we, we have to do certain things to, to recertify, whereas a loft is generally like a, a scenario that is set up that we have to deal with from takeoff to landing that tests kind of where we're at or what, you know, make is sure this we done know. live <clears throat> in a plane. No, this is in a simulator in a big warehouse on hydraulic jacks 
and he's just rock around in a box for a couple hours. <laughs> How realistic is the simulator? It's pretty close. It, the cockpit looks exactly the same. All the buttons do the same jobs they do in the real airplane. It feels slightly different. You can't recreate that feeling of flying fully on the ground, but... How has that simulation technology evolved since you've been a pilot? I don't know. I'm using simulation technology probably older than I am still. What? So they haven't upgraded <clears throat> it? The planes I fly are quite old. Mine, the, the ATR was built sometime in the, or designed sometime in the 80s and was pretty prevalent in the 90s. And the plane itself is like advanced. We just happen to have old models of them. Okay, but they've come out with newer models. Yes. So, so what got you into flying? I don't know. I've wanted to do this since I was five years old. So I did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mom said I wanted to start. I was talking about being a pilot when I was five. So, And then I've always been into airplanes and was encouraged all through school to to follow that passion and wasn't sure how we were going to afford to go through flight school because it's stupid expensive and i was told you know don't worry about it just just go do it we'll figure it out and we did and i've been a pilot for 20 some years now yeah how was it when you first started oh super exciting i was doing what i wanted to always do right so it was amazing <clears throat> how did it live up to your expectations um, those expectations have changed for sure since I started, like everybody wants to be an airline pilot or a jet fighter pilot or something, but, and I had that idea too. I figured, oh, I'll be an airline pilot. I really wanted to fly for WestJet. And now that I'm older and I have a family, that idea has kind of left just for, for lifestyle choices, right? I don't know. What's the lifestyle of a WestJet pilot? Um, I haven't done it, but from people I have talked to who are there and, and doing that job, they're away a lot, uh, especially if you don't live in this, your, your base city, which we live in Saskatoon, there is no base here. So you'd have to commute. It's either Toronto or Calgary. So you go usually the day before your, your trip and then you're gone for four or five days and, and then have to commute home on your last day or the next day. So you're away a lot, which would be really hard on my wife and family. And Absolutely. So uh, you'd be gone for a week. week at a time. And that, you know, I do that now when I go to Montreal, but I do that every six months versus every week. Every time you have to work. Exactly. So right now, uh, the company I'm with allows me to be at home for dinner most nights. That's huge. Yeah. And I work, I basically work Monday to Friday, which so is a consistent schedule, a relatively consistent. Yeah. Other than, you know, delays, like we already talked about. <laughs> yeah. So how was the path to get to this final job? When I started or after, I, I guess, after I graduated from flight school, I was lucky and I got a job right away. I was a flight instructor for a year and a bit. It, that was rough. I did not enjoy that job at all. <laughs> Um, what made it not enjoyable? Uh, mostly the people I worked with and the company I worked for. The flight school I had gone to was was a Bible college, and so very um, people focused. And you know, the instructors were there for us all the time, 
and put in hours with us that weren't always charged. And then when I went to do this, you know, I emulated what I had learned and was disciplined for it because I wasn't charging enough money. I wasn't always trying to get as much out of the students as I could. I was trying to be a good instructor and help them in any way I could. And that was frowned upon. <laughs> what? I know, right? <laughs> How dare I? You're trying to do the best job possible. Yeah. And, and <laughs> kind of didn't work out well for me. So I did that for about a year is all I could stomach. And I was like, I, I can't do this. And so you were getting reprimanded. Yeah. For not milking Everybody. these new pilots. Yeah. Okay. So you left that job. So I left that job. And then where? <clears throat> Well, I had been working, that was the other part of this, is I was making minimum wage doing this in Alberta in 2004, five. So I think it was like seven bucks, eight bucks an hour. As a pilot? Yeah. What? Yeah. As a flight instructor? Yeah. Well, I, when, I, when I was actually flying, I got $11 an hour. <laughs> oh, what? But we all had to take turns working the, the desk. The check-in and, and dispatch is what they called it. But it was, you, you were answering phones. So, yeah, it was terrible. So I had to get extra work. So Really, how come? They were paying you a fortune. Yeah, paying me a fortune <laughs> in Calgary during a boom. And I had to live, uh, I was living in, in Didsbury and, or, and Olds at the time, which is almost an hour north of Calgary. So you had to commute an hour. Just to get to work. Just to make minimum wage, I, it was terrible. Where'd you go after that? So this is about the time that I met my wife. Um, I, I was involved in the youth group at the church up there. I, you know, fresh out of Bible school, wanted to be involved. Plus, that's where the girls are. <laughs> Check. Yeah. So uh, I got involved with the, uh, the local youth group up there. And, um, that's, yeah, like I said, by the time I met my wife, so we were starting to date and do those sorts of things. And her sister got me a job at the town of Olds part-time, um, just kind of doing, uh, reception and cleaning at the pool once a week just to help supplement my income so I could fly still. And then, you know, I got so fed up down at the instructor job that I quit one day. I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is ridiculous. You're asking me to come in on my days off. I get one day off and I'm working my other job just to survive. So F you guys, I'm, I'm out of here. And, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a good separation. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm really exploiting you though. Yeah. That's just it. And uh, so I went into the HR at the town and I said, hey, uh, I need some full-time work. Like, is there anything I can do? And they're like, actually, yeah, we need somebody at the arena uh, for the next, it's a term position. I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll take it. Like, whatever. I don't care. I need work. And so I, I uh, yeah, got a temporary job at the Parks and Rec Department um, for a couple months which turned into five years, permanent, full-time, where I worked. What made you stay with it? Oh, it was good money. I was making, I went from 11 bucks an hour to like 25. 
Oh, yeah. What were your responsibilities? Uh, I, I was a Zamboni driver. <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome. I took care. I learned how to make ice and take care of the arena. I drove the the Zamboni there for yeah, almost five years. In the summer times, it was great. We worked four 10 hour shifts Monday to Thursday outside all the time. Just doing. I, I did a lot of uh, I, I'm good with my hands and and pretty quick to pick up on how to do things so i actually did a lot of maintenance and stuff around the town i was supposed to be mowing lawns and weed whipping and whatnot but i was better at this other stuff so i you know i got to kind of tinker with things and fix things and build stuff like it was fun it was a great job how was it making ice what's all involved mostly just getting getting cold concrete wet (laughs) (laughs) it's a slow process so you start with you, like we, you once the temperature is brought down in the rink, and you just kind of splash water from a hose onto the pad, and artificial ice is only like an inch thick. It's not very thick at all, so you slowly build that up to make a nice hard ice surface. Once you're, I can't, I can't remember because this is almost fourteen years ago now, but a uh, quarter inch of ice, they paint it white. And you know that powder paint that you used as a kid? Yeah. You remember that stuff? Yeah. That's basically what they're using. That's the paint? Yeah. It, I think there's like, it has NHL branding on it, so it's probably... probably quadruple the price. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's probably fancier than what we use, but that's basically what it was. <laughs> and then uh, we paint all the lines for hockey ice. Oh, on that first quarter inch. <clears throat> yep. And then now... And then you build up a little bit more. You paint... Um, we had an AJHL team, the Olds Grizzlies. And we had this massive logo that was all hand-painted, which took a couple days to do. But it looked really good. What? Who hand-painted it? Us. What? How? So they have this... Um, just rolls of paper with um, the, the, the stencil. Oh, okay. And then you use chalk to outline it. And then... Yeah, you'd go in and you'd paint the lines. <laughs> and honestly, like it, it, when you look at it, like it wasn't perfect. But as soon as you get a couple more layers of ice and people have skated over top of it, you never know. Yeah. So, so it was paint by number to start. Basically. With a stencil. Yeah. And then you layer up that ice. And then you layer up on top of that. So there's like another good uh, bit of ice on top so it's protected. And then, yeah, you just you just keep that going for the year. How do you keep it going? So what's the maintenance on that? Um, just you drive the Zamboni over it. So it shaves the ice down. Like, I don't know. It shaves it. It's very little that you take off. That's where all that snow comes from when you see a Zamboni. And then you put fresh water over top. That's why you, you can see the water come out the back of the. Okay. So the Zamboni puts the water down too. Yeah. When it's, that's, that's the maintenance process, right? Okay. So it's shaving. And then while it's sh- right, right as it's shaving, it's, Putting more water down. Yep. And Replacing it. Okay, I gotcha. And then every week we'd go do a maintenance run where we'd shave it down like a eighth of an inch, half or quarter inch, just to get it nice and flat, and then build that back up again with a couple of floods. And then just just from the centrifugal force of you going around in circles, water tends to Oh yeah, come out to the sides. Go out to the sides, so you have to go and use a special grinder to grind down on the sides to keep that flat because you'd get like 
two or three inches of ice there if you weren't careful. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. So then you were there for five years. So you left aviation for five years? <laughs> Basically. I was I I kinda went back to instructing on and off because the the lady who had kind of been my or who was my boss asked me to come back to a different company that she went to. <laughs> but I had some leverage this time. I was like, no, I'm not leaving my full-time good job. And I, we were engaged when this happened. I'm like, I'm getting married. Like, I can't afford to work for minimum wage anymore. This is stupid. And honestly, I'm not leaving this job. It's it's too good. I get full benefits. Everything's, it's great. And... uh She's like, no, it's fine. Like, is there anything you're interested in doing? I was like, oh, sure. I'll do evenings and weekends just so I can keep flying. Because it's still my passion, right? I still want to fly airplanes. I really enjoy it. And so she agreed to that. I would, she agreed to pay me, like I think it was 25 bucks an hour for flying time. I was like, yeah, this is great. Okay, I get to make my own schedule. Perfect. And so I did that for another year. You know, didn't get a ton of hours. But, you know, I kept flying, so it was fun. And then made my bread and butter by shaving ice and doing other various tasks around town. <laughs> so how'd you transition to full-time pilot then? So one of my best friends who I went to college with, he got a job uh, or had been fueling uh, out here in Saskatoon at Westwind. And we st still kept in touch. We had been roommates for a while. Kind of when I went through all my instructing stuff, he was actually working in Calgary on the ramp um, and then he met a girl out in Saskatoon, so uh, he left. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's like, hey, yeah, this place is great. You should come out here and see if you can't get a job too. So yeah, that was 2007, 2000, yeah, 2006, 2007 is when all this was happening. Because yeah, Andrea and I got married in 2007. And then... He just started flying out here in uh, 2007, 2008. And I came out here to meet the chief pilot and kind of tour the place. Dropped a resume off. I said, thanks, but no thanks at that time. Well, there was nothing going on. The industry was very slow at the time, um, which isn't super uncommon. It's it's a boom and bust sort of thing. Uh, and then two years later, they were they started to really pick up in the flying they were doing and they needed people. And there was a lot more movement happening. So that's when I got picked up. But I got the job. I took a huge pay cut to come out here. I went back to probably, I think it was less than minimum wage. My first uh, year salary as a King Air first officer was 27000 a year. How did they legally pay you less than minimum wage? I am not sure. Because you're, you're salaried. You're a salaried employee. I, I, I'm not sure. Oh, I see. You're salaried, but they were really working you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was interesting. But again, it was, it was the chance to like actually pursue what I wanted to do. And so I jumped on it. I dragged my poor wife out here. Uh, we had two kids at this point, and she was pregnant with number three. And you took almost a 50% pay cut. Yes, I did. Yeah, it was crazy. So she was awesome. She picked up the slack, what she could do. We had daycare kids. We were living in a shitty little apartment over in Lakeview. <laughs> 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 and 
Uh, it was pretty hellish for her for that first winter. But she supported you. She did. 100%. She's been nothing but a 100% support of me following my dreams. So, which has been amazing. I see the reason you two got married. Well, yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, totally. Of course. Yeah, that was a tough year. We had, we didn't, we have no family here. The whole plan initially was just, just to come get some experience and then go back to Calgary and hopefully get hired by WestJet at some point. And that hasn't happened and it's been 13 years. <laughs> <laughs> when did the plan change? Uh, it slowly changed as I progressed through the company because I, I moved up pretty quickly. You know, I, I started as a King Air first officer. So the King Air is an eight passenger turboprop plane, so small. And then I started flying the 1900 as a first officer, which came with a decent pay raise. I think it went up to like 37000 <laughs> <laughs> So no, nothing crazy. Um, and then I started flying the ATR as a first officer. So the ATR is what I fly now and is um, a small airliner. It's a turbo, big turboprop. So what's a turboprop? Um, a propeller-driven airplane, but it's powered by a turbine. Versus a piston engine. Okay, so there's a propeller out front that's spinning? Yep. How many passengers have you taken on this ATR? 44 is what we carry. It's what ours are configured for. Okay. How long have you been with the ATR, on the ATR for then? Well, I was on the ATR as a first officer for a year. And then I had the opportunity to go captain on the King Air. And a captain job, because you have more responsibility, comes with a rather substantial pay raise <laughs> so yeah i we, we were living in poverty for the first three years and then all of a sudden i'm making sixty thousand. so so it's pretty good and but still yeah we're gonna go back to alberta at some point that's where our family is or her family is and you know we'll have some some support there but again it was kind of a low period in the industry. So there wasn't a lot of movement. WestJet Encore started up around that time. And so that was an interest. I had some experience on the bigger airplanes. I had experience as a captain and I was like, okay, maybe now this is my chance. And what year was this around? Uh, This would have been 2014, 2015. Okay. So you were captain on the King Air. Yeah. And so this is kind of when, like I said, when WestJet Encore was starting up which is their regional side of WestJet. They fly a similar, a larger version of basically what, what I was flying, the, the ATR. I figured, okay, well, that would be, a, that, this is, if we're going to do it, this is the opportunity. And then you look at the pay scale on that, what they were offering, and it was back down to like $37,000 a year for a first officer. And they're like, well, you, you know, you just, you, got to go in for overtime and do this and you can make, you know, 50, 60. I'm like, that doesn't sound like fun. Like I have at this point four, five kids at home. Like, no, I don't want to do that. So I had, that was my first WestJet opportunity. And I, I turned my nose up at it because it would take me away from my family. (laughs) And I would take a pay cut, which would make things really difficult. Tons of negatives. Yes. So it starts at first officer or what are, yeah, you, Generally start as a first officer because that's that's your entry-level position. The captain is the one responsible for the airplane and responsible for everything and has the experience, hopefully, 
<laughs> should know what they're doing and can kind of guide the first officer and how things are done, right? And and you should basically you're an apprentice as a first officer. Wait, is that a co-pilot? Yeah. Okay, so you're so as a captain, you're the pilot in command. You're the so who's a co-pilot? The first officer? Yes. Okay, but they don't call it a co-pilot. They call it a first officer. Yeah. So you start first officer, and then what's the next level? Um, either captain on that airplane. So that's why I went from the King Air to the 1900 to the ATR as a first officer, because I learned all those different airplanes from more experienced people. And then I had enough experience at that point, and they were like, yeah, you can fly the King Air now as a captain. We feel you have the experience, the necessary knowledge to make good decisions. And now I have my first command, which means I'm in charge. If I fuck up, it's all on me. <laughs> if, the, if this guy sitting next to me fucks up, it's still my fault. Oh, man. So, yeah, it's a lot of responsibility. So how do they test to know that you're ready to be a captain? Uh, well, a lot of it will come from, you know, the, the other captains you're flying with already. Um, they'll ask and say, hey, how is he doing? And then there's also, like I mentioned, those flight tests that you do. And that'll be an indication, too, of oh, what level you're at. What level you're at. And then also you're just the time you have flying because we keep track of every hour that we fly. So, like, when I started at Westwind, I had 600 hours of flying time of various different types and then worked my way up. So when I applied to be a captain, the minimum requirement was 2,500 hours of experience. And that's what I had when I got my first captain seat. Now they've lowered that because there's no pilots. What? Yeah. So they changed the standard. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens. So how many hours do you have now? Uh, I am a couple hundred away from 8,000. Is, is that a lot of hours? Uh, it's not a small amount. <laughs> I don't really keep track too, too much anymore. Or it doesn't matter as much as it used to. At what point did it stop mattering? When I, when I became captain on the ATR, I was like, Meh. <laughs> whatever. I'm where I want to be. I'm making the good money now. Okay. So the first barrier to entry is hit that 2,500 hours. Yeah. That's how they, that's how they quantify your experience is how many hours do you have? Right. So when you get out of flight school to, to even get your first job, you have to have a minimum like 250 hours. And so most companies back when I was starting wouldn't even look at you with that because there were so many other experienced people around. So getting your first job was really hard. And that's why you took what you could get, even if you were being abused. That's why I took that instructor job. Oh, because they know they got you. Yeah. You, you take what you can get. And that's why I took the, the King Air job when it came up. I was like, this is my chance. I'm going to go for it. I don't care what it costs. I got to do this. Because that could be a missed opportunity that <clears throat> might exactly. not come again. And then it might not come again. Nowadays, things have changed drastically. You got a heartbeat and a pilot's license. You're probably going to get a job. What so, changed? COVID. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of guys that were offered early retirement um, and took it. And people got laid off and decided, I don't like this lifestyle, so I'm not going to go back. 
And then they've been calling for a, that there's going to be a pilot shortage for for years because the industry is still picking up even after COVID. It's very busy. And with the loss of all those crews, as well as just an increase in business altogether, there's the pilot shortage is real. It's happening right now, <laughs> which for me is good. Yeah, job security. Yep. Then but how did you nail a Monday to Friday job when there's that was that was uh, just a blessing, to be honest. And I I've had a few opportunities to leave at this point. I actually got a job offer from uh, SunWest Aviation in Calgary, which is a very similar company, but paid a little bit less that I turned down because, again, I had more opportunity here. And then I actually had another opportunity to go to, to, go to WestJet and WestJet Mainline this time to fly the 737. And again, this was just a couple months ago. And I turned them down because, again, the lifestyle wasn't there. The pay's the pay is there now. They, it would have been okay. Oh, they smartened up with the pay. Yeah, that was why I kind of initially was like, oh, "Okay, let's look at this again," and I applied because the pay had gone up quite a bit, and I had, had some friends that had gone and had access to their pay scales and saw what was available. I would have taken a pay cut for a couple of years, but after that, it starts going through the roof, which would have been amazing. So after three years, you're. I would I would have been at parity where I'm at with where I'm at now, and then after that it it was like the first officer salary because again I would start as off as a first officer even though I'm a captain now because I don't know that airplane I would be a first officer on that until I had acquired enough skill and experience and they needed another captain on the 737 then I have the opportunity to upgrade so. Yeah, I think their top top salary was like 160, 170 grand a year for a first officer. And I was like, oh, I could. For a first officer? I could deal with that. Oh, yeah. As soon as you go left seat, captain, you're, you're 200 plus. Easy. So it was very a very hard decision to make because that money is very. It's tempting. Very tempting. But what we kept coming back to is what am I giving up to to do that? I'm already flying. I already enjoy what I do for the most part. I'm. Do I need to go fly a bigger airplane? Do I need to go to different hotels and stay in those? Because the cities you go to eventually just become what hotel are you going to be at? You don't have time to actually go tour these places for the most part. How did you guys <clears throat> come to that decision? Because we've discussed it a lot over the years. When we've thought about different opportunities, you know, are we chasing money or are we, what are we, what are we doing? And we always come to the same conclusion that no family needs to come first. We have six kids and I'm just as much responsible for them <laughs> as my wife is. So, uh, and I want to be a present father. I don't want to be an absentee father that is just providing the finances it's more important for me to be there and present than it is for me to be able to buy them things. Yeah, so, you got your priorities straight. Yeah, though. I'm, I am sacrificing financial stability. Like we're relatively stable, but like more money to 
use my time to be with my family versus buying them whatever they want. And I hope that they appreciate the fact that I am <laughs> <laughs> around at least eventually, right? So, yeah. That's... It's not about the money. I found more people, they think what they want is money. People want more control over their time. Yes. And they think money leads it's, to that. No, I think it takes away. The more money you make, the more, well, this is a good, good example because it's a lot more money, but I'd be gone so much more. I have way less control over my time. Yeah, you have to make some big sacrifices. Exactly. So it's it's not worth it. So I get to stay home. I get to do the career I wanted. It's not as glamorous as, you know, walking through the airport in your uniform and, and uh, with a tail of flight attendants behind you. But I, I'm at home every night. I get to sleep in my bed every night next to my wife. I have my six kids in my house who know who I am and see me and there's no talk of divorce or anything. <laughs> like it's just, it's great. Yeah. There's a lot of benefits. There. There's so many benefits. Yeah. So I chose lifestyle over money. Makes sense. Yeah. So what do you do now? What's your main role? My main role? I'm a captain on the ATR. So what do you have to do? Make sure nobody tries to kill us. What? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm responsible for the whole flight. So, who are you transporting, or what's going on with this? Uh, so, what I do is mostly transport uh, mine workers up to the mine sites up north, the uranium mines. So, are these chartered flights then? Yeah. So, we also have a scheduled side of the operation where, like, if you want to book a ticket to go to Stony Rapids, which, you know, you're more than welcome to do. Um, and this is kind of the only way to get up there in a reasonable amount of time. This is the only airline that flies up there. So then you work for the airline, but your main role is you usually do the charters. Yes. Oh, well, I'll do the sked flights too. That we're, we're starting to, to do that more. There's been some changes. We only ever used to do the charter work. That was it. That was all. It was... PA, Larange, a mine, and back home, and done for the day. That's what I did all this week, and it was great, other than the delays. So you fly from Saskatoon to PA to Larange? To, yeah, we just hit all the stops on the way north. So uh, Saskatoon, Prince Albert, Prince Albert to Larange, and Larange to Key Lake or Cigar Lake, do, the, do a crew swap up there, and then we'll bring those guys home. What's the difference for you between charter and the scheduled flights? Just the way it's run. Like the flying, flying's flying. It's the same no matter what. It's just a couple different destinations. So instead of going to the mine, we'll hit Prince Albert and then we'll go to Stony Rapids and Fond du Lac and back. And we just carry a shit ton more cargo doing that. For the scheduled flights? Yeah. So... A lot of people, if they're coming down south, will buy their groceries and some other necessities while they're here. And so we routinely take 3,000 plus pounds of freight up north with us. Whereas on a mine flight, it's weird to see 500 pounds. So, oh, because these guys are going to work. Yeah, they're going to work for whatever, a week, two weeks. And they just need to change of clothes. 
But so. so there's people that fly down to Saskatoon or PA to do their big grocery run. Yep, they'll do their big grocery runs. See a lot of Costco stuff. <laughs> and I'm well versed in Costco, so I know what I'm <laughs> what I'm seeing. And um, I mean, people have to come down for medical appointments just to travel to see family. I'm sure because there's I don't know if you've been up there, but there's not a ton of um, stuff going on up there. Like I used to spend when I was on the King Air, I I would spend a week at a time up there, um, doing flights out of there. So you kind of move around and and see the community a bit never really got involved because i'm not there that long but people are nice and this is in larange no this is stony rapids so it's um about as far north as you go in saskatchewan i think it's the northernmost community how is it out there sandy sandy in the summer cold in the winter (laughs) what but it's beautiful it's it's so what do you mean sandy just the soil it's very it's sand oh so you can't grow anything there no there's there's short little trees um it's like it's all forested it's it's canadian shield it's um honestly i liken it to at least from the air in the summertime it looks like uh coastal bc just with no mountains so many lakes and what hills there are very rocky looking and it, it is it is beyond gorgeous and especially and right now with the fall leaves and colors going on it is otherworldly it's it's amazing oh you're really selling stony <clears throat> rapids here i it, it has a special, <laughs> special place in my heart <laughs> i can't say i've always enjoyed my time up there minus 40 with nothing to do it's it can be pretty boring but yeah. So what made it so you had to stay a week up there before? Uh, that was one of our bases. So I would go and cover for the crews that were based up there if they were on vacation or something. So I would go up for a week and we would fly. Um, same thing. We would do a trip to like Fond du Lac, Wollaston Lake to a mine and back to Stony. Picking. Oh, so you're bringing everybody from Stony and out to work yep. and then back to Stony. Yep. Do they live in Stony? Yeah. And and Wollaston and Fond du Lac are the other communities. So yeah. what's a big lesson you learned from being a pilot? A big lesson I've learned? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Slow down. <laughs> Try not to rush things too much. It can be dangerous to rush. I guess one of the first things I was taught was, you know, in an emergency or if something's going wrong, um, they were saying, you know, take your hat off. We didn't wear hats, but this comes from like uh, British Airways, I think. Take your hat off, meaning relax. Think about the situation, what's going on, and then deal with it. So slow down. See what's going on. Watch, watch what's going on with your situation. And this works for life too. There's no, no rush to get anything done. Ah, so not... this was taught to you early. Yeah. By some pretty experienced people. What's an emergency you've had to deal with? <clears throat> Luckily, nothing too serious. There have been minor failures only. Nothing, nothing too serious. But we do train for the really serious, scary things. 
every six months. That's why we go to, that's the other reason we go to sim, not just to practice our Your landing approaches and stuff. and stuff, but. Okay. So you don't call them landings. You call them approaches. Well, the approach is the, like I said, the following the instruments to the ground. And then the landing is just the, that's the easy part. So landings are easy? Sometimes. What's the difficult part? Well, all of it, put it, put it all together. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I say that because I've been doing this forever. <laughs> Landing the airplane is not easy. It's, it's very challenging. The ATR especially so. It's for, I, I, I'm flying with a new guy who's, who flew 737s over in China. And he's like, this is, this is way harder than flying the 737. And I'm like, okay, well, it is what it is. What makes it more difficult? Um, it's a high wing airplane. Um, so in a crosswind, if it's pushing you one way or the other, it just makes it harder to land straight. So a crosswind like would be the wind blowing across the runway versus. Okay. So it's coming from your nine o'clock yeah, or your three o'clock. Exactly. And so you're, you know, you're part of the air at that point, right? So if you're pointed straight down the runway and the wind is coming from your your side, you're going to move off your track. So you... Uh, you have to account for that. Yeah, you, you crab, we call it crabbing, into the wind. So you'll you'll be flying, the, the runway will be your table here, and you'll, you'll turn into the wind to hold your, your runway center line. Oh, so you'll actually come at an, in at an angle towards yep. the wind. Yeah. And so the hard part is, you know, maintaining that. And then as you come in to touch your wheels down, so we call it that flaring. So as you come into the flare, you have to push your nose over so your wheels touch down so they're straight. And that is... While the wind is blowing. While the you. wind is blowing. And the wind's variable. It's not constant. Nope. It's moving all over the place all the time. And it's, you know, you get gusts in there and it, it it's challenging. And so because of the design of the airplane, because the wing is so high, it acts as a uh, kind of a sail. So the, it can... Oh, if it be, catches below If it catches wing. below the wing, it'll lift it. And so you you have to be really like on the controls. You have to fly the airplane you have to control that airplane the whole time whereas a lot of other airplanes i've flown have been really easy like you can be kind of lazy during this phase of flight the king air was kind of like this it was really easy to land it in a crosswind you didn't have to work really hard for it and then you get on the atr and it's again just a different design high wing and the tail is huge so that also is acting as a sail and the, the whole fuselage, it's just, there's a lot going on. So you're being facetious when you said the landing was easy. Yes. <laughs> How do you account for the wind? What do you have to do other than pointing your nose into it? Well, if, if you're just trying to maintain straight and level, all you have to do is point your nose into it and that's fine. But you're, you're trying to descend and decrab the airplane to, so, you, like I said, oh, yeah, so you're trying to straighten it out. Yeah, you have to straighten it out so your wheels touch down at the same time, or at least close. So, what you do is you have to roll your plane into the wind, and you have to use your rudder to 
steer yourself straight. So you're rolling, say, to the left, and you're pushing the nose over to the right with your feet. So you touch down one wheel, then the other, and yeah, you just <laughs> trying to do this all at once and slow down. And and this is all manually controlled with your limbs. Yes. How fine of a control is it? Uh, it can be very fine. It's like a little bit of movement is can be a lot. So you could overcorrect. Yes, very easily. And so that's the problem with some of the new people who aren't used to this design. It's it's very, it's a very heavy control feel. There's so no out, so it's a lot of resistance when you're doing this. Yeah. So we have no. Um, a lot of big airplanes will have like a hydraulic assist to this or it'll be controlled hydraulically and you're just moving a lever back and forth, right? On the ATR, it's cables going from your control column all the way out to the wings to your <laughs> ailerons. Yeah. So it's cables. So you, there's no mechanical advantage on this. They, there's a little bit. <laughs> but there's no hydraulics. There's nothing pumping. No, no. It's all you. It's all us. So, I mean, there are, there is a little bit of like aerodynamic help the way, the way things are designed. And then we can also trim this stuff to take some of the pressure off. What's trim? It's another little control tab on say your rudder that will push the rudder over to make it easier. So you don't have to hold it. Oh, okay. The whole it, time. It'll move it to that certain stop point. Yeah. And you, then now you're fine adjusting. From yeah. You, it's a fine adjustment just to make it so you, you don't have to hold those inputs in the whole time because the required inputs will change based on your speed and altitude. What's, what's the most difficult wind condition to land in? Oh, just like a really strong gusty crosswind. So yesterday was a good example. Thankfully, it wasn't a crosswind. So normally, any, any wind that's between... Three o'clock and nine o'clock at you, that's the toughest. I think so, yeah. Yeah, because that's when it's, it's the strongest. Yeah, or, well, that's when it's working against you. Yeah, the most. Yeah. Other than if it's... If it's coming right down the runway at you, it's, it's easy. That's normal. That's what we want. The wind's coming down at me. It's, it's helping me to slow down. It's causing me to fly or move over the ground slower, right? Which is what you want. Yeah. We want to touch down at the slowest possible speed. What's the slowest speed you have to get to to touch down? Um, the slowest? If there's no wind at all? Uh, 90, 97, 95 knots. So that 150 kilometers an hour? Yeah, thereabouts. I don't know exactly what the conversion is. roughly a mile per hour, right? Uh, I'm going to look it up right now. <laughs> Let's find this out. I don't remember. <laughs> You're captain. I don't think you need to remember this anymore. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just doesn't matter because we... <laughs> You're going to adjust for it anyways. Well, we just, we fly off knots, so everything's in knots. It doesn't matter. Oh, right. Yeah. 176. Hey, close enough. So kilometers that's the, an hour. That's the lowest speed you'll That this land airplane at. lands at. So what's the range? Are there other planes that land faster or slower? Yes. So what's a really fast one? Oh, like 120 knots, I guess. So almost 200 kilometers an hour. And that, I, I don't know. That could be. They could be more. What's, could the, be more? what's the slowest you've landed? Slowest would be in like a Cessna. So it's like 40, 
35, 40, something like that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You can get going pretty slow. <laughs> okay. So, so you were talking about the emergency scenarios and you haven't had anything major. No. What's the non-major thing that you've had? The non-major thing that I've had? Or the, the highest of the non-major. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, nothing that interesting. Just the systems failures. Something something broke that wasn't necessary. Yeah, you need everything that you have, but we have redundancy. So, you know, you know, I had a generator fail, but I have another one, so I don't lose any electrical power to the airplane. I just don't have my backup now. I'm using it. Okay. So, so you're flying without a backup, but there's always a backup. For most things, yeah. What do they train you for? What's a big catastrophe that could happen? Oh, an engine failure or an engine fire. So if an engine failed, like, so you got two engines, one in either wing, right? So if one of those fails, all of a sudden you have a whole lot of power <laughs> pulling you on this side and zero and some drag, like you, that prop is not doing anything other than creating um, drag, now. drag now. It's 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 a board sitting out in the airflow. So the air, whole airplane wants to, yeah, it wants to rotate. Turn. And when it, it doesn't just rotate in one axis, it rotates on all three. So it'll actually want to like roll over on you. So what do you have to do when that happens? Just counteract what's going on. So the, the worst possible time for this to happen is as you're taking off. And so your slow speed and a lot of power and so if you don't do anything, yeah, it'll roll over and you'll... Oh, and the ground is right exactly. under you. There's no time to recover, no time to do anything. You just... And that's that. So that is the most critical time and, and where you have to be most on guard is right at takeoff if you have an engine failure. So we call those V1 cuts and they are pretty exciting <laughs> and yeah we get to do them in the simulator which is a good place to do that thing because if you really screw it up i mean you're not gonna die you only get one chance right so so how much do you have to practice that at this point you know we do it a couple times during recurrent training at the in the initial training you do it a lot more but you kind of get the feel of, of how the airplane's going to handle when it happens and as long as you can identify what's happening when it starts, you should be able to fly the airplane. Oh, so most of it is identifying that you have an engine failure. Yeah. So you're like, okay, well, and putting in the right inputs. Because again, so it's wanting to, to yaw off to the side of the inoperative engine. So you have to counteract that with your rudder to hold the nose straight. But it also wants to roll. And it also wants to roll. So you have to roll the wing in the opposite direction to hold the wings level. Plus, you still need to climb. Oh, so you got to manage the pitch too. Yeah. So you're managing all of this at the same time while trying to deal with an engine that may be on fire or figure out what else is, is possibly going wrong. So that's why it's good that we have two crew in the cockpit because you need two people. One person to fly the airplane and then the, the other person to deal with Things that need the to happen. fires that are popping up. Yeah. So the takeoff is the most dangerous part of flying? No. It's, it's one of them for sure. Again, anytime you're close to the ground, it's 
it's it can be dangerous, but is it the most dangerous? I don't know. I guess in a scenario like that, yeah, it's it's. What's the most dangerous in your opinion? Uh, landing. Like a. <laughs> Once again, you're being facetious. <laughs> yes, very much so. Uh, no, landing is definitely, for me, the most uh, the time where I am most on edge because of those crosswinds and the amount of control that you need to have of the airplane to keep it where it needs to be, which is on the runway. Straight. Straight on the runway. Like I, I mentioned earlier, with our pilot shortage, that is really starting to crop up. The level of experience that we're seeing in the cockpit is declining. So our first officers are, are newer and don't have as much experience outside of flight school for for a few of them. So, so they have those 250 hours Some of them, yeah. You said that as if there's some that have less. No. Okay. That's kind of the, that's kind of the minimum to okay. get the job. <laughs> Where it kind of is, or it is the minimum. It is okay. So two hundred fifty hours minimum to get a first officer job. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's where it's at. How do you manage the stress of landing? Well, up until this point, I I'm not a or haven't been a training captain. I was just actually offered that last week to be a line and dock captain. But usually they'll fly with some of the most experienced people first before they get um, let go to fly with the other crews. So you, when you first finish your, your initial sim training, then you'll go to what's called line indoctrination. And that's where you learn. Sim training is all about emergencies and how to deal with all the bad things that are happening and how to... <laughs> Uh, you know, you get some of the basics down, but you know, how we fly the airplane on approach, how we do everything is, um, dealt with in the sim. So So the simulator is there to show you everything that can go wrong. Yes. And everything does go wrong at some point in that training. It's like 10 days of different scenarios. Right. And then after that, you come home, you've done your, you've passed your ride then you have to go and yeah, do line indoctrination, which is just doing normal line flights. So hopefully very few emergencies, <laughs> right? You just, you know, you're doing your normal everyday job, kind of getting in the swing of things, how the pace of everything goes um, with somebody experienced and learning how to, you know, fly the airplane in different conditions because the simulator is good for teaching all those emergencies, but not so good at teaching, you know, how to land the airplane all the time or how the takeoff feels because it does feel slightly different. And that, that is important. So the emergency stuff, simulator, normal every day, generally on the line, but with uh, a very experienced captain who can fly the airplane by themselves for the most part. So you're a captain, so you're able to do this on your own. Uh, no, well, no, it's a two crew airplane. We have to fly it two crew. I'm experienced enough now that they have asked me to be a line and dock captain. So I will be getting some of the newer first officers as they come in and having to teach them how to land and how we operate on a day-to-day basis. So then when you're flying and you're landing, how do you maintain your focus? I just do my do the job I I guess it's 
I don't know if I, I've ever had to work to maintain any focus. It's just everything's very um, uh, we, f we follow our, our standard operating procedures. And I think that that's what helps maintain focus. If you, you do A at point one and you do B at point two to, you know, configure the airplane and then as long as A equals B equals C and the airplane's set up, you, you fly the airplane. If something is missed and you didn't, you, you, you know, forgot to lower the landing gear or something, then you need to step back and this is where, you know, slow down and what did we miss? What's going on? We're not going to continue with this landing. So we're going to go up and go look at things again and, and start, start from the beginning. All right. So, yeah, maintaining focus is, I don't know. Because you I, have that SOP, so you have a, a specific list of things and a specific order you have to do it in. Yes, and we also have checklists to back all this up. So you're not making any decisions then, so that's how you maintain your focus. Yeah, we're not, I'm not, I'm not going to say there's no decisions to be made at that point, because there are, because things are fluid, everything's changing all the time. But we stick to those SOPs for all situations to keep us on the path to a successful touchdown. So we do all, as, as long as we're following those, configuring the airplane properly, no matter what happens that is outside of our control, you know, winds shift or something happens, we follow that, we should, the outcome should be a successful flight. Yeah, totally. Well, you have enough of the system in place and then you have enough training in case something comes up. Yeah. And that's where, you know, the experience comes into play as well is if something happens while you're kind of, you're on that approach into a landing and something unforeseen happens, you know, at, at that moment you, you, the engine quits. Okay. Well, there is no SOP for that. How are we going to deal with this? And that's, but you've trained it in the sim though. Uh, not always. There are scenarios that pop up that you can't possibly plan for, right? So. How, what's one that's popped up that wasn't in sim for you? Well, like I say, I haven't had too many that have popped up, but, you know, a bird or something, you're, you're not expecting something to happen, and all of a sudden you see this bird go by and it gets sucked into your engine. It could shut it down. You know, we don't train for, we don't have SOPs for every specific scenario. We have an SOP for when the engine fails. We have a checklist for when that happens. But the, a scenario that would instigate that, at what point we train for like the V1 cuts and we train for one happening like in cruise and that's kind of it. And then you deal with it from there. Um, so the V1 cut, that's when you're taking off and an engine quits quits yeah and then in cruise in cruise it's you're, you're at altitude you're going you're in the middle of going from point a to point oh B. you're cruising it's not crew as in crew member it's no you're in cruise in cruise yeah so oh. that's that's different right you're going fast already if that engine quits it's not as um it's not detrimental yeah it's not as hard to deal with you have lots of altitude and you have more time and our checklist is actually different for that scenario so how's it different what do you have to do see if it'll relight and if the engine will turn back on 
there there's a, a checklist for that if that doesn't happen then we secure it so you cut off fuel to the the engine and feather the prop so that means when you're flying the propeller is biting into the air right and our propellers will move depending on how much they need to grab air oh so you can change the blade angle. we can change the blade angle yeah and that's called feathering that's variable pitch feathering is when we move the blade from being um, broadside to the wind to the oncoming wind to the knife edge to the wind the, the leading edge and that's feathered and that's the state you want it in it's the least amount of drag because you don't have these big paddles out in front of you <laughs> right yeah and so yeah you want that so you put that knife edge on and yeah. that's that's feathered that's feathered the airplane becomes much more easy to control on one engine. And then you got to land with that single engine then. Yep. And so once you get everything, like once you get all of it together, you know, we talked about trim and, and, and controls and the feather as long as soon as you get it feathered and get the airplane trimmed out, it's, it flies relatively normal. Oh, you made all the adjustments yep. and You've, now it's ready to go. Yep. So it's not a huge deal to do an approach and land. Like it's, it definitely doesn't handle the same, but it's, it's not, at, it's not as hard as the initial like shock of losing it. Cause that can be very violent. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. Oh. Hey, other than the wage, what surprised you when you first started being a pilot? <laughs> the wage. <laughs> <laughs> um, how much not like school it is. School, they teach you, you know, they teach you the basics of how to do things. And once you actually do it, it's, it's, I don't know, school just didn't prepare me as well as I would have thought for it. It, it It's different. Well, there, I'm not, I'm not going to say there's shortcuts to everything, but there are more efficient ways of doing things than you're taught in school. So what do you think makes them teach you that non-efficient way? Because that is what is outlined in the manuals on how to do things. So for the most part, like, yes, we do follow that, but everything was a lot more fluid once I actually started doing it all the time and learned how these things are supposed to work in the real world versus... Oh, how everything interacts with itself. Yeah, versus the training world. It was chunked up. Yes. Everything makes a lot more sense. After doing it for a couple of years, it was like, okay, this... Oh, I see where these pieces fit. Yeah. I was given a whole bunch of pieces and it wasn't necessarily in the right order. Oh, really? Yeah, all the time. And you didn't see the big picture? No, not not right away. And that might have just been me. But once I learned, everything was like, oh, this is actually pretty easy. When was that moment? Probably somewhere in my second year of doing this. The first like few months were very still catching up to a lot of people say you're behind the airplane, meaning there's so much going on that you're still catching up to it, you know, five miles back behind it, trying to keep up with what's already happened versus planning ahead to what is going to happen. Oh yeah. You're overloaded. You can't even think about what's going to yeah. come at you. Yeah. You're still trying to process what's happening at this moment and you're really behind. Yeah. So I know my first couple of flights were definitely like that very much. Holy shit. Like what's going on? Like I did all the training. I know 
I don't know what's going on though. They say I'm a pi- <laughs> they say I'm a pilot. Yeah, I don't know about this. <laughs> what made you stick with it then? What else was I going to do? I'd spent so much money and time to get to that position. <laughs> no, and I still loved flying. It was great. I was getting paid to fly an airplane. Like, how incredible is that? Oh, you knew it'd be worth it. Yeah. And it has been. It's been it's been a good career. What's the best aspect of it? Uh, usually not dreading going to work. I don't mind getting up and crawling in my airplane in the morning. It's fun. There are some days that I obviously don't want to go. I mean, everybody has that, but for the most part, I know I'm going to fly with good people and we're going to have a good day. And I still enjoy the act of flying the airplane. Like it just feels good. It's what I'm supposed to do. It hasn't lost its novelty. (laughs) Flying? No. The everyday part of it, yeah, but there there are definitely days where you're like, holy shit, I can't believe I'm doing this. Well, what's the everyday part of it? Well, you know, in in a lot of aspects, it has become a job. It has lost its novelty. But then there there are days where, you know, you see that sunrise or that sunset and you're like, oh, this is amazing. Like, I can't believe I get paid to sit here and do this and look out this window and watch the world go by or on a really crappy weather day where the wind is howling and the snow is blowing and you land that airplane like it people don't even know you touch the ground and you're like fuck yeah i'm a freaking boss i just did that (laughs) (laughs) so that feels pretty good yeah or you know just those challenging situations that you overcome. That you overcome and you do it and you do it well and you're like, yeah. And nobody even noticed? No. That's the best. <laughs> nobody should notice. Yeah. If you do everything properly, it'll appear nothing is done at all. Exactly. <laughs> That's the best part. So, All right, man. Well, should we close this out? Sure.